0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Published or not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by
2: David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR.
1: Published or not, every Thursday, 11.30 till
2: noon. And a good morning to all the listeners out there David McLean here on Published or Not, Jan's away But we have Ewan, good morning Ewan, how are you? Morning David, I am very well, thank you And you've got an um, interview coming up with uh, Bernadette Brennan about Helen Garner uh,
3: Indeed I have, uh, spoke to her recently on the line from Sydney And she's written a book all about Helen Garner's work Okay,
2: well let's hear it now
3: ah, Okay, here we go Helen Garner is one of Australia's best-known authors. Helen made her name in 1977 with her novel Monkey Grip, which was later turned into a successful feature film. Over the 40 years since Monkey Grip was first published, Helen Garner has built an acclaimed and often controversial body of writing, including fiction, non-fiction, screenplays, journalism and essays. Her books include The First Stone, Joe Cinque's Consolation and This House of Grief. The monumental task of documenting and analysing Helen Garner's decades of writing was recently taken up by another Australian author, Bernadette Brennan, in her highly readable book, A Writing Life, Helen Garner and Her Work, which has just been released by Text Publishing. Bernadette is on the line with me from Sydney, Bernadette Brennan. Welcome to 3CR's Published or Not.
4: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: Great. I'd like to start, Bernadette, by asking you about the background to taking on this monumental task. What led you to decide to write a book about Helen Garner and her writing?
4: Well, I was obviously quite interested in Helen Garner and her writing. Um, I was an academic at the University of Sydney, so I had taught Helen Garner's writing to undergraduate students for a long time. I assumed at the time that there was I knew there was a lot of critical material out there about Helen Garner but I didn't realise that there had never been a definitive book that brought together the whole bulk of her work. There had been an excellent monograph, a very small book done by Karen Goldsworthy in 1996, and that was uh, just when True Stories, Helen's uh, collection of non-fiction, was in proof stage. So it was the year after The First Stone had been published. So that's when Karen put that book out, and there had been nothing ever since, and I thought, that is a gap that needs to be addressed. I then found out that there was a lot of archival material in the National Library, and it involved the first stone and Joe Cinque's consolation. And I thought, well, this is too good to pass up. I need to see if Helen will give me access, because it was embargoed, those archives. If Helen would give me access, I might be able to look at this material and add something constructive to the debates that are going on about her writing and Helen did give me permission to um, use those archival materials and there I wrote the book.
3: There were some treasures in there, were there?
4: There was, oh, there were such treasures. It was such a delight. I have to tell you, the National Library special reading room became my favourite place in the whole of Australia and I was... (laughs) ecstatic most days. Of course, I couldn't go and tell anybody because um, it's confidential, a lot of the information and uh, a lot of them are Helen's diaries of the time. So I would be, my brain would be zinging at the things that I was reading and seeing, but uh, then I just had to synthesise it for the book.
3: Now when you say you synthesised it, it wasn't a conventional biography. How would you describe the approach you took to writing about Helen Garner and her writing?
4: Well, it's an interesting question because Obviously a conventional biography would involve interviewing all the people that were at the centre of Helen's life, her husbands, her family, her children, maybe her grandchildren, her friends. Um, Helen did not want a biography written. I wasn't that driven to writing a biography as such because all these people are still very much alive. Um, but I thought the one thing Helen Garner has done for 40 years is beat down any kind of restriction placed on the form of writing by genre and i thought well at least i can do is come up with a different kind of form as a sign of respect if you like for what she had tried to do over her 40 years of publishing understand so so i had this idea that okay we i can't do a scholarly monograph i can't do a biography something in the middle and the idea of a literary portrait came to me as in a sketching an outline of a writer's life which by its very nature, must deal with that writer's publication because to be a writer, the essence of your identity is what you publish and write. But I could put all that writing and that publication within the context of her life and the people that make up her life on a biographical, personal level. And to date, I'm really pleased to hear readers say I've given just enough context for them to understand why she's written what she's written, how she's written what she's written. I
2: I
3: agree. I'm one of those readers, and I've read some of Helen Garner's writing, but not all her works. And by looking at her life through her works, I'm much better understood not only all the work she's done, but the development of her writing process and her superb style that has evolved over, well, really, the, the last 50 years because you actually start with letters to Axel yeah. 10 years before Monkey Grip. Yeah. So it really does take us back to her uh, university days and Axel Clark being Manning Clark's uh, son, I believe. Mm-hmm. and um, so But... Just going back to that point about the way her work would often defy being put in a particular genre, I think a a large part of that process seems to be the the way that Helen Garner would combine fiction and non-fiction. Would you agree with that?
4: Absolutely. So that um, some people become enraged at um, the idea that, for instance, The Spare Room or Monkey Grip... Um, would be classified as a novel because they say it's so close to Helen Garner's life. How can she possibly claim this is fiction? And in the book I explain why you can read it as fiction and why it is fiction. Um, The other reason that people got most cross, I think, with Helen in terms of what she does with genre was when she published The First Stone and for legal reasons she had to change uh, the central character who was uh, Jenna Mead and she made that character into a range of characters. She tried to explain why she did that in a a bit of an oblique author's note at the beginning and that got her into so much trouble because it was arguably a serious breach of the contract with the reader about non-fiction to change um, various characters in that way.
3: But on the other hand, if it had been too specific, she may have been sued for defamation.
4: Absolutely, she, she would have been. Uh, well, I'm sorry, she, she may well have been. <laughs> and uh, But also, in being too specific, the, the interesting thing about that book is that it was driven by a specific instance and by specific individuals. But what she wanted to do, and what actually has also happened about this book, is that it became a much bigger debate about women being polite powerlessness, um, patriarchy, a a much broader debate about uh, women's place in polite society, what kind of power and what kind of um, resistance women might be able to put up.
3: You've represented that very well too in your book. It is the largest chapter on Mm -hmm. the first stone. And I'll just add that you're listening to 3CR's Published or Not. I'm Ewan Mitchell and today I'm talking with Bernadette Brennan about her new book, A Writing Life, Helen Garner and her work. Now, going back to that controversy, now, in the 70s, the new wave of journalism, or the wave of new journalism, I should say, principally from the US, uh, saw reporters using fictional techniques in their supposedly non-fiction features, including things such as imagined but plausible dialogues. So, when Helen Garner employs similar techniques, um, well after the 70s and uh, into the 90s, Why do these techniques seem to arouse such debate?
4: I think because it first happened when Helen published The First Stone, which was her first major non-fiction book. So she was known as the stylist, she was known as the fiction writer who could write her own life or domestic life or things that she knew very well to then put herself, and she put herself in the centre of the first stone, the book, uh, as a way of negotiating her uncertainties, if you like, that's one way of putting it. Um, And it was seen to betray the very fundamental idea that if you are going to talk about specific individuals and instances, you must stick to the truth, you cannot make up dialogue It's an ongoing debate we continue to have in, I think, all sorts of literature and all sorts of um, readerships. Um, I remember Drusilla Majeska published Poppy in the 1990s, and it was seen to be outrageous by some people because she'd fictionalised her mother's diaries. Oh, right, okay. So, you know, it's it's an ongoing, it's a very interesting Mm. question, but it's a question about this new, it was actually this new kind of genre, creative non-fiction was going on.
3: At at least one point in her writing Helen toys with the idea of creating a third person version of herself mm. and a first person version of herself in the same book mm. to interrogate each other. Could you expand a little bit on that technique?
4: Oh, I'd love to because uh, I've, I've been getting some fantastic reviews of the book but someone the other day I read a review which said I wish that Bernadette Brennan had probed this even more deeply but of course it all had to be cut at the final bit. Oh I see. And um, And it it comes back to this idea that we all know Helen Garner so well because Helen Garner tells us so much about herself and puts herself on the page and she tells us she's sobbing or she's furious or she's ecstatically happy or whatever's going on. But once you then go into her process journals or her diaries, you see how carefully she crafts herself. So in that particular instance, she was talking about Joe Chin consolation and she was not sure how she was going to deal with the I character that was reporting on what was going on in Canberra. And so she thought, I wonder if I could make up someone like me that's not quite like me. And once you spend a lot of time looking at her journals and looking at the way she crafts a sentence or changes what actually happened to what you get in the book, you suddenly realise that the Helen Garner you read in the book is and is not Helen Garner the person walking around chatting to you if you meet her on the street. It's a very crafted self. And so she puts this I in there, the first person, oh, this is me, I'm in Canberra and I'm waking up to the birdsong. But she also puts in another voice which interrogates herself, acutely aware that readers might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, lady, what are you doing putting yourself in the middle of this story or why are you um, portraying yourself in this way? So she she does the interrogation on the page in front of us, if you like, as a way of questioning herself and, and what her role is in the story. But her main point she wants to do all the time is to suggest that she's unreliable in that text. She's an unreliable narrator, so you can believe what she's saying, but you should also be questioning it at all times.
3: And there's a basic honesty about that, isn't there, that she pursues that self-interrogation ruthlessly. Now, just returning to a point again about putting herself at the centre of events, as she did in two court cases, one with Joe Chinquay and one with the Farquharson case, which is the subject of this house of grief. When she was then promoting her book, The Spare Room, Someone on Darwin Radio caught her back by making a comment, and I'm reading here from page 246 of your book, a comment from a reader that, yet again, Helen was forcing her way into the centre of somebody else's pain. But Helen had an eloquent reply to that that you've quoted here in the book. Would you care to paraphrase her reply?
4: Yes, it was a wonderful moment when she gave this um, reply. What she said was um, at the time she made a response to the caller that was she felt was inadequate and she said, what I wished I had said was that I want or I try to take someone else's trauma into myself and I mull on it and I craft it into something that could be something more constructive. It might not necessarily make things better, but it, it's about the writer's task is to take an issue or to take an instance or to take a character or to take an event and to absorb the darkness, the power, the trauma of that event and to produce something that makes it more understandable for readers and for, in that case, it was for Maria Chinque very much so.
3: And you've made your account of Helen Garner's life and her writing very readable. You've Left out academic language, which is great. Nonetheless, <laughs> you've quoted some esteemed literary figures. I'd just like to round out this interview, Bernadette, if I may, by asking you a question I like to ask all writers. What is your take on what makes great writing? Mm, that's
4: a big question. I think great writing is writing that is very clear. I think it is writing that is unafraid to take the, the reader somewhere where they might not normally have gone. So great writing is writing that, uh, that takes you into an experience that might surprise or shock or delight you, but it takes you somewhere that you're not regularly going to be. And, and it does it almost seamlessly, and it does it quite beautifully, often.
3: It's a very eloquently put. Way of
4: putting it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Bernadette. Now, A Writing Life, Helen Garner and her work, written by Bernadette Brennan, published by Text Publishing, available now in all good bookstores. And today, Bernadette Brennan, thank you very much for enlightening us on your new work.
4: Uh, My pleasure. Can I give you one last bit on this? Helen sure. says that she's a great fan of 3CR because you were the first radio station that interviewed her when she published Monkey Grip in 1977.
3: That is fantastic to have on record, and 3CR still is the home of alternative radio in Australia.
4: How wonderful.
3: <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Benedict.
4: Okay, thanks. Bye.
2: And thank you for that, Ewan, and a great endorsement there at the end. Now it was, wasn't it? Jan's not here, but she is through the aid of modern digital technology. Here's her interview with Louise Wilson.
1: Margaret Flockton was a botanical artist, and also Auntie Mog to Louise Wilson. Welcome, Louise. Thank you very much, Jan. Now, before we talk about your auntie, let's talk about botanical art. Why is drawing? better than photographs?
0: Um, Well, I had to learn this myself from the botanical artists at um, the the Botanic Garden in Sydney. But basically, a photo can't pick up all the fine details that you can discern through a microscope. So they're doing the drawing through a microscope and they can then transfer the tiny little details um, with the aid of their special microscopes. You
1: know, I was amazed by that that microscope. It's called a... What's it called? a Camera lucida or lucida, yeah. So these were around back in 1890s. Yes. And then because of them, they, they were used in development of uh, periscopes for submarines. Yes,
0: yes. They've had quite a... And they're back in vogue for a lot of um, other uses, but... Um, Yes, I'm afraid all the technicalities of it escape me. But um, yes, it's quite amazing what they can see. And the the black and white version of the botanical art is, I'm told, that um, many men are blind. And if the art is drawn in colour, they don't necessarily recognise that colour in the plant that they're looking at. So it started as a black and white form. For, oh, that, for that reason, and I thought it was just cost. Well, cost I'm well, sure cost is one is of the. Cost is part of it for the massive reproduction of the work, but um, originally, that's I'm told again um, by the experts that that's the main reason it's in black and white.
1: Okay, so let's.
0: It also focuses your attention on the structure of the plant because that's very important in the botanical definition of of a plant.
1: So, when do the drawings move from science and that true depiction of plants in botany to art?
0: Well, um, it's a, it's in my mind it's it's blurred because the scientific botanical art is very art. It's artistic in itself because you have to still go through all the procedure of art with the composition, the, the placement on the page, the angle that you choose to draw the plant from. Um, the art, I think basically people think if it's not in colour, it's not art. It's not If it's not a pretty picture, mm. it's not art. And so... Um, You know, a lot of people still don't think of botanical art as art. In fact, I've given talks where people in the audience just poo-poo the whole notion that botanical art is art.
1: Well, this book, uh, Margaret Flockton, A Fragrant Memory, has so many colour plates in it. You look at them and go, just wow!
0: <laughs> it is wow, isn't it? And this, it's just you know, beautiful. there's a, on some pages there's a a picture of a of a botanical version of a plant, and then opposite is a scientific version of it. And you know, people find that quite fascinating to see how much more um, definition and and
1: um, yeah, just just the whole difference in, in the approach. Now, it's one of these things we take for granted now that, you know, you can see pictures of flowers and whatever and little, you know, the flowerets and the leaves and things. But I was amazed, going back in history, Joseph Banks yes. had personally paid... An, uh, a botanical artist, Frederick, uh, Ferdinand Bra- Bauer, to make sketches of all the new plants Joseph Banks found. Yes. And then they were all donated to Kew Gardens yes. in London. So that's how Kew Gardens got their botanical art well, they Well,
0: t- yes, they weren't long established at that stage. And, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> the whole history of botanical art is quite
1: fascinating. Well, it- now we're going to move from the subject to the personal. Your Aunt Mog. Margaret Flockton. When and where did she train? Uh, she trained
0: in, well, she started, her parents started her training because they were artists. Um, she was, she says she started when a, a pencil was placed in her hand when she was three. Then she went to the um, national art training schools that were free around the country. She started it, it seems, in Cardiff in Wales. And then she went to the training schools in London. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a major organisation based at what's now the Victoria and Albert Museum, and that used to be the headquarters of all the, the, the training centres. Like it was kind of like a TAFE, an advanced TAFE college um, for training people in art because it was a lot more important then. They didn't have cameras. They had to actually have
1: pictures of things that were drawn and... and um, so I love this. Where the men in the art school had nude w- models, the women had not nudes but idle young men with attitudes. Yes,
0: <laughs> in the, fully dressed in their suits and their ties, and yes, and they, but the right pose. They had they they struck a, a good pose to attract the women
1: to drawing them. So it was very funny. So Margaret's two sisters, Dolly and Isabel, came to Australia and they were married within three years of being here and with kids and And that's when Margaret came to Australia too. Yes,
0: well, she and her parents, they were... The, the, the father was very financially irresponsible. Oh. Yeah, I think they must have found out from the daughters that life was much better in Australia and um, so they came in 1888. I don't think Margaret, love life or lack of it is pretty silent, mm. um, but anyway, she she basically had family life through her sisters and their children.
1: She had a number of jobs, a lithographer, art teacher, and she had a studio in Sydney, and her paintings were exhibited in London with works by along by Streeton, McCubbin and Tom Roberts, and I liked that one of her wildflower paintings was in a volume of Australian wild flowers given to Queen Victoria to celebrate her Diamond Jubilee most other botanical artists trained were trained by parents or spouses who were naturalists or botanists who were some of the other botanical artists at this time <sighs>
0: Well, uh, Alice Rowan was one, um, probably the most well-known one, but there were a number of others. I like the idea
1: about Gertrude Lovegrove, who published Wildflowers of New New South Wales, but then she got married, so she couldn't do that anymore. that was the end of her career. Uh, And the thing about Alice Rowan, because that's the woman that I had heard of and um, she painted very differently she she would go out and play, uh, draw or paint in the open yeah. and she travelled you know she, North America she, yes. New Guinea and everything well she
0: had um, fortunately she didn't have a husband to encumber her but she had his money because he died so she was she had that ideal world for women at that time, being a wealthy widow, but she, her art was very well regarded, but it lacked the um, scientific name attached it didn't to have each painting. Labels Yes, which
1: is an interesting thing, isn't yes. it Yes
0: So but it was a very good depiction of the relative plant or the relevant plant, but without the name, it wasn't any use to scientists, and Margaret's, of course, didn't have the color, so it wasn't regarded as art.
1: And Margaret didn't have a very pushy friend either. No. Alice Rowan had uh, Sarah Hines. Now, she's going to be an interesting uh, person to get a biography about, too. She was a botanist, a botanic artist, but she was charged with being insubordinate and moved from Hiberium to the education department.
0: Well, I think the problem really was that she had ideas above her station from being one of the first women to graduate in botany and her boss, the botanist in the Sydney Botanic Gardens maiden, who's got a huge reputation, but he never finished his degree. So she always felt superior to him and she let it be known she wasn't very tactful at the Botanic Gardens and she stirred up a lot of the other men. They they weren't used to dealing with a, a feisty female. So uh,
1: eventually Maiden moved her on. You just mentioned uh, Joseph Maiden. In 1901, he was made head of the Royal Botanical Garden in Sydney and he built the Herbarium. What was his endeavour? What did he really want to do?
0: Well, he went to Kew to study their collection of um, eucalypts and, and acacia and uh, he wanted to collect information and drawings and, and set up you know, a proper,
1: what's the well, is- word? Yeah, the Forest Floor Taxonomy. of New South Wales. Yeah, yeah Eight one. volumes. Yeah. And of those, uh, Margaret Flockton illustrated vast majority. The vast majority, majority yeah. yeah. Eight 304 trees. There's 600 Indigenous trees altogether. So Margaret worked at Herbarium for 25 years. So by the time she was about to retire,
0: you know, she was getting, her, her eyesight and so on was getting a bit not so good and she was completely overloaded with work so that's why she didn't finish all the drawings. She got younger women to come and help including her niece because it was all part of the family line of business. Yeah, she did a huge amount of work. They're still amazed when they open various archival boxes to see more stuff that she's done. She's done yes. But that's the trouble. It's all hidden away in government archives. It's hidden not...
1: away? We don't know about it. Yeah. Or her, really.
0: No. Well, she's, she's been fated in Sydney now. They've, they've finally discovered her. But... Um, it and took the, a long time.
1: Yeah. She's got four plants named in her honour. Uh, Dorigo daisy bush and a eucalyptus and acacia and a mushroom. Yes. <laughs> that was her personal interest, the mushrooms. What else she did was she, she and under Joseph Maiden's uh, orders, started, studied op... op-, op- a Opantia. A yes. Fill us in what that is. We know
0: that mostly as the prickly pear. So they were trying to find a botanical solution to the control of this pest that took over the entire sort of swathes of countryside and animals had no crops to feed on because the prickly pear had taken over the pastures so he tried all sorts of things like you know when to try and destroy them when to try and poison them when to to control pests in, in plants and eventually he gave up and handed over to the Insect people who um, oh, found goodness. the c- cactoblastus solution. But the drawings
1: that Margaret did. They're and stunning, not the they? cover of this beautiful, yes. beautiful book, The Prickly Pear. And it's just, you can she sort of is, see the detail. Yes, and, and, and you the can the see version.
0: that there's art in it. It's not just a very factual drawing. It's a
1: very... Beautiful. Yeah. So, of course... Your auntie Mog, we do get the family history too. We see a lot of her father's poems with funny sketches that he drew for the family. Learn about them all having nicknames, Doobs, Toots and Mog. And how she bought a house and employed a housemaid, Isabella, whose retired father also lived in this house. Pretty garden, but rather basic. Outside Mm. toilet and sometimes a very smelly grease trap. What I liked is her... Sharing of information, she worked out a a treatment for tick-infected dogs. Yes, she was a very
0: intelligent woman who, you know, didn't have all the opportunities that she might have had today. She she cared about things, you know. She cared about cats, birds, dogs, lots of things in the environment. Her her nieces and nephews, um, her sisters, you know. She's just Mm. if there was a problem, she'd try and find a solution.
1: And it was your grandmother who was the family oral historian. Yes. So she passed on to you all the stories about her auntie Mog.
0: Well, she passed on to my sisters, who then passed it on to me, and Mum. Mum was taught by Aunt Mog, because my mother was an artist as well. Aunt Mog was still alive when I was a child. I do remember her, but she was 92 when she died and I was seven, so I don't have great memories, but you know, she, she was a, a definite feature of our
1: family. Well, and she should be a definite feature of our history too. Yes. So you've put her there in a I beautiful so. book. A book about class attitudes, parental expectations, about the notion of duty, art, gardens, and quiet feminism. Louise Wilson, thank you very much. The, our book is called Margaret Flockton, A Fragrant Memory by Wakefield Press. Thanks, Louise. Thank you very much.
2: And Ewan, that takes us out for another week. It does
3: indeed. Thank you very much once again, David McLean. And remember, the podcast is available via via 3cr.org.au. And we'll see you next week, Ewan. Great. I'll see you then.
2: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to
0: allthews.3cr.org.au.